What went wrong? Often when things go terribly wrong in our society, when things go wrong for the first time, people want to find out why it went wrong and how they might prevent that from happening in the future. A inquiry, an inquiry might be called by the government, a judicial inquiry to investigate the circumstances, to call witnesses and hear testimony, to distill it all down and produce recommendations that would allow us to understand exactly what went wrong and how we might prevent it from ever happening again. We're in this series in Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 11 called The People of God. Today we're spending our time in chapter 10 of that passage. And in that section, we'll see how things went horribly wrong for the people of God, horribly wrong for the nation of Israel. How could it be that things went so wrong? And we need to listen carefully as we work through this passage today and hear what God would have for us, because this isn't merely a history lesson about what went wrong for Israel. There are warning signs here for each of us as to how to prevent the same kind of thing from ever happening again. Even in our own lives, it is a private judicial inquiry into the status of our own relationship with our God. We have to hear what went wrong for the people of God. And we must hear what it is we can do to make sure it never happens again. Romans chapter 10, I'm going to read just a few verses from this chapter, beginning at verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and he's speaking of Israel, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Down to verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, I pray that in this moment, before we look intently into your word, I pray that we would eliminate all of our own spiritual arrogance. God, that we would humble ourselves, we would be broken before you, laid bare before your word. That, God, you would continue the transforming work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We want to find out how God's people went so wrong. How can we make sure it never happens again? Let's start with where they ended up. Where did the people of God find themselves? Uh, This is the tragedy, if you will, uh, that prompts the inquiry. Where did they find themselves after going so wrong? The bottom line is this. 
They did not succeed in obtaining a relationship with God. Now remember, the context of this passage is the nation of Israel. We look at the nation of Israel as being the keepers of the promises of God, the ones to whom were given the covenants. We look back in the last chapter and we see all the rich spiritual heritage and blessings that were given to Israel that they might be a blessing to the entire world. And we find out here now that they did not succeed in obtaining a relationship with God. They found themselves outside of God's plans and purposes and without the salvation that God offered to all. Now look back into chapter 9, in fact, and we see some clues towards this. What shall we say then? This is verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Now let's understand that the Gentiles were outside of God's covenant community. But it was always God's intention to bring them into that, that they too would know the God of creation, the God who was truly their God, despite all the false gods that they worshipped. The Gentiles were out there. God wanted to draw them in, but uh, they were not part of God's original purposes for the delivery of the message. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but they've attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. You can imagine what's going on here. All of a sudden, the Gentiles have the message. The Gentiles are the ones who have understood it and understood that it needed to be appropriated into their lives by faith. Now, look at this, a sad verse, really. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Now, sometimes, let me pause there and just say that sometimes we look at that word law with regard to the Old Testament and we think that that speaks of legalism. When we see the word law, we really just need to see it as saying the teachings of God, uh, that which God prescribed for his people. Uh, but it was never God's plan that they should see it as some kind of legalistic code. It was never that. It was never do this list of things and enter into a relationship with me. It always and forever has been about faith. And so uh, God gave them a law of righteousness that, again, if accepted by faith, would have allowed them into the full relationship with him. And indeed, many faithful uh, Jews did indeed find that relationship with God. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Don't you love it when the scripture just answers the question? Because you're sitting there going, wow, I wonder why that happened. Look at the next verse. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, you got to mark that verse, okay? They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This is really the crux of the whole issue of how we get into a relationship with God and how we make a mess of things, how we make a disaster of things, it's all about the faith and works uh, dilemma that we have as, uh, as people who are seeking out a relationship with God. Look what it says. It goes on to say now in verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, speaking of Israel, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, let me ask the question, what exactly is the stone of stumbling or the rock of offense? Or should I say, who exactly is the rock of stumbling and the stone of offense. Who is it? Say his name. It's Jesus Christ. That's who it is. And whoever believes in him, the text tells us, will not be put to shame. Whoever, Jew or Gentile, whoever believes in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. 
Now we're asking the question, where did the people of God find themselves? We're finding out here they pursued the wrong concept of righteousness, the wrong law. They didn't obtain unto it, the text says. And in verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul says, with all of his heart pouring out, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. The assumption Paul is making is that they are not saved. They don't have it. They failed to obtain it. This is the disaster. This is the tragedy. This is where the children of Israel find themselves outside the plans and purposes of God. It's an awful tragedy. I might ask the question then, I've heard it said so many times, are they still God's chosen people? Are the Jews still God's chosen people? It's a great question. Would you read a text like this and you go, wow, it sure doesn't seem like it. The fact of the matter is that God's chosen people are those who genuinely enter into a relationship with him by faith. The nation of Israel are his covenant people. He gave the covenant to them, but not all within Israel. We learned last week, not all Israel is true Israel. Not all those who are Jewish uh, according to their ethnic persuasion even prior to the time of Christ, became true followers of Yahweh, believing in the coming of their Messiah. Are they the chosen people today? The chosen people of God today are all those who by faith have embraced Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. The chosen people are those among us here in this room who have genuinely found the forgiveness of sin and have embraced him. Does this mean then by saying this that God is completely done with Israel? I think that by saying that God's chosen people are among us, among Jews and among Gentiles, does not preclude the fact that in the future God may indeed continue to work with the ethnic people of Israel to call out a new remnant from outside of the people who are called Jews. God will do that work. And we'll see much more about that in the coming weeks. There is so much happening right now that indicates a future hope for the people that God had the covenants with. Chapter 9, verse 32, though, really gives us the hint as to why they ended up in such a bad place. It's not really a hint. It says it so clearly. They did not pursue it by faith. This is entirely a faith and works dilemma. So that leads us to the how did they get there. If that's where they are, outside of the plans and purposes of God at this point, how did they get there? They went off the rails. They went off the rails because they believed that they could work for their salvation. They could work towards their relationship with God. The whole point of the Protestant Reformation back in the 15th, 1500s was to again alert the church to bring them back to say it is salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's not of works. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And I want us to keep this in mind. I believe firmly that more of us are caught up in this than we care to admit. More of us are caught up in the whole works to try and gain God's favor 
It's like we're inside of the hamster cage, running on the wheels, trying to please God, working, doing more, trying to get God to notice us and thinking that that's the way, and it's not. And Israel's story stands as the warning to us. How did they get there? The text tells us about three things. Here's the first. From verse 2, they were zealous, but for the wrong things. They were zealous, but for the wrong things. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I bear them witness that they, that is the the Israelites, have, have a zeal for God. The Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That word zeal simply means a passionate commitment or an enthusiastic devotion towards something. Are you zealous for something? The Jews were very zealous for certain things. They were devoted, but to the wrong things. It was not, the text says, from knowledge, this understanding that God gave them through his word. This is the way you should worship. This is the way you get into a relationship with me. They forgot about that knowledge and went off and created this zeal for things that God wasn't all that interested in. I had the privilege of sitting under the teaching of Joe Boot this past week from Ravi Zacharias Ministries was up at NBC and he took us to Amos chapter 5 and it's a startling chapter. It's not unlike some other places in the scripture. Isaiah chapter 1 where we see God saying, I'm not very much interested in your feasts and festivals. I'm not so much interested in your temple worship. I'm not interested in your songs and your sacrifices and all the things that you're bringing to me. All things that God had prescribed in the scriptures as the ways that they should worship. Not interested in these things. In fact, God says they are detestable to me. I hate them. Why did God hate them? Why did he hate the very things he had said to them? These are the ways you should worship me. It's because their hearts weren't in it. It wasn't by faith that they were doing these things. They had a zeal, but it was a zeal in the wrong thing. It was as if worship had become the end in itself, the sacrifices, an end in themselves, all the festivals, an end in themselves, not things that were supposed to point to the Messiah and point to God and bring them into a genuine relationship with him. They missed the point. They never went far enough. And there is no doubt that the Jewish people are a zealous people. There are some modern miracles with the Jews that live amongst us today. I had the privilege back in the spring to travel with uh, 18 other people from our church to go to the land of Israel and to spend time touring around uh, 12 or 13 days. And it was an amazing trip. I saw things there that are quite unexplainable. I saw that these people exist today in the 21st century, largely due in part to a great zeal that they have for who they are. You see the way that they have built the land and brought prosperity to it. You see the passion they have to exist. In fact, the very fact that we have Jews today is due in large part to this zeal they have to maintain their identity and culture. In fact, there is no other people group anywhere in history that has managed to be scattered to the four winds across the whole of the globe for 2,000 years, two millennia, scattered, not having their own homeland, yet maintaining who they are. 
In fact, every other people group that's ever been conquered and scattered has been assimilated. All the ancient cultures of history assimilated into other cultures so that they are barely discernible today, if at all. Not the Jews. Scattered in AD 70, they remained a people living in Asia and Europe and in Africa and in North America. And in 1948, regathered together in the land that Abraham had given. It's remarkable. It's a miracle. There's no way to explain it. The fact that Israel is there today is something. You see, there are a whole pile of believers today who believe that there is no future for Israel. And the fact that Israel exists today as a people, the fact that they resurrected a dead language, it stands in the face of those who say there is no future role for Israel. I say, explain this. Explain the miracle of Israel today. Explain the miracle of a land where when you run along the borders and you see desert on one side of the border and you see prosperous crops on the other side of the border, the Israelis bringing out from the land things. I'm telling you something. I look at soil there. I'm no farmer. I look at soil there and I go, you can't grow anything in that. And they're bringing two and three crops a year out of soil that we would write off in this country. There's something happening there. The people of Israel exist today. Aside from the understanding that it is God's sovereignty that they exist, they exist today because they have a great zeal for their own culture, for their language. They have a zeal for the land. But let me suggest, it's misplaced. They've created an idol out of the land, out of their culture, out of their language. It's misplaced. And on the day that they finally realize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, they will cast those things aside. And they will worship him the way that God intended for them to worship him all the way along. They have a zeal. But for the wrong things. I need to ask, what are you zealous for? What kinds of things really charge you up? What's the thing that consumes you in your life? I mean, maybe it's ministry. I'm, a, I'm all about ministry. I'm, I'm all about the church, and I'm pouring myself into it. Maybe it's my small group. Maybe it's, maybe it's being part of the worship team or, or part of some other ministry group here in the church. Maybe you're fired up for that thing, but maybe it's all misguided. Maybe your zeal's in the wrong place. Maybe you're doing it for the wrong reasons. It's a good thing. Maybe it's about your family. Maybe you're not so involved here, but man, your family is everything. Family is everything to me. You're so zealous for your family. You're zealous for your marriage and you're zealous for your children. And in some cases, family becomes so all-consuming that everything else is cast aside. Does God love family? Absolutely. Does God want you to have a phenomenal marriage? Yes. Does God want you to pour into your children and ensure you pass on your faith? Yes, he does. But we can't make an idol out of it. And some of us have a zeal for our families. It's the wrong place because we don't have God at the center of it. Maybe you're not even that far down the road. Maybe your family gets ignored and and maybe it's all about career and possessions and I'm just zealous for the things that I can accumulate in this life. Maybe it's something like this. It's because all those things can be such blessings from God. But maybe it's sin in your life. Maybe there's a secret sin in your life, something you've not told somebody. And you're more zealous for that thing. If you were really honest this morning, you'd say, I'm more zealous for that sin 
I'm more zealous for the way that makes me feel. I want that really more than God, and that's why maybe you've never been able to conquer that sin. Maybe you're sitting here right now saying, I'm hoping that today's the day and I never go back to it again. Maybe you've done that a thousand times before. And what's really true about you is you're more zealous for your sin than for the Lord. Zealous, but for the wrong thing. Zeal alone is not enough. It'll get us into a bad place. Here's the second thing. The children of Israel were righteous, but by the wrong standard. Righteous, but by the wrong standard. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, you're going to see two different kinds of righteousness here. They were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness. I'm going to try and work out my own righteousness. Isn't it so much? Like if there's a verse right here, if there's a line right here that fits right into today, it's this, creating a righteousness of our own. That's our whole society today, isn't it? I'm okay. You're okay. Oh, yeah, you know, what you believe is okay. I got my own thing that I believe, and you go ahead and believe your own thing. And hey, you know what? Who am I to say if they're wrong, you know? Live and let live after all. Aren't we a tolerant society? And we all just got to live together as neighbors, don't we? We have a whole society of people who are crafting a righteousness of their own, one that makes them feel comfortable, one that helps them just kind of make it through life without having to submit themselves to the righteousness that comes from God, His standard of righteousness. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They made it up. In the 18th century, there was a group of students at Oxford University in England. They formed a club on campus called the Holy Club. There were some men, in fact, part of that. If you know anything about church history, you'll recognize some of these names. But John and Charles Wesley were part of the Holy Club as was a man by the name of George Whitfield, and he was a revivalist and a speaker and really was one of the principal uh, preachers during what was called the Great Awakening, preaching on both sides of the Atlantic in the, uh, the uh, American con- uh, colonies and then also in the United Kingdom. So Whitfield and the Wesleys were part of this holy club. What the holy club was really about on this campus was kind of the rigorous exercise of spiritual disciplines, I want to ask the parents right here, wouldn't you be like so excited if your kids went off to university and called you up at home and said, hey, mom, dad, I've joined the Holy Club. I couldn't even imagine it being advertised in the Student Gazette. Could you? The Holy Club. Come join the Holy Club. Probably wouldn't have that many members. But the Holy Club was following a righteousness of their own. You see, they believed that a rigorous exercise of the spiritual disciplines would lead them into a relationship with God. They really felt and went so far down the road to believe that they were earning their salvation by performing these spiritual disciplines. Well, George Whitfield began to be concerned with this because the problem was that as they exercised these disciplines, the reading of the word and lengthy prayers and getting up early in the morning to be there, uh, to, to pray with one another, to hold one another accountable and, and periods of time of great fasting. And, and the problem was as they exercised these disciplines, they just got more and more and more miserable. 
far from gaining a relationship with God, they were driving themselves further and further away because they were righteous by, by, by the wrong standard. Now, there's nothing wrong with the reading of Scripture. There's everything good about it. There's nothing wrong with praying, nothing wrong with fasting. Those are good and, and beautiful spiritual disciplines that can indeed enhance our relationship with God. But when we think they're the way that we get into the relationship, we find ourselves outside of where God would have us. Whitfield wrote this. God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. He wrote, shall I, shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down or shall I search it? I did search it. And holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a heaven or if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. God soon showed me in the reading, in reading a few lines further, that true religion is a union of soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. Well, like the Holy Club, the Jews had developed their own rigorous system of do's and don'ts. And by the time of Christ, the party known as the Pharisees, let me just call them the conservative evangelicals of their day, had this complete list. They had taken the principles of God's word, what God had laid out in the Bible itself, and had laid out hundreds of more extra rules for us to obey. This is the way we interpret this, and this is the way we interpret this, and if only you do these things, you will be righteous in God's eyes. You'll have a relationship with him. In essence, the Pharisees were the holy club of the Jews. And miserable. Because the text tells us they failed to obtain that which was promised to them. They failed to obtain the relationship that God desired for them. Their standard of righteousness was designed to determine who was in and who wasn't. And what they found out, what Whitfield found out, what the Wesleys found out, what the Apostle Paul found out, what you and I desperately need to know is the do's and don'ts our own standard of righteousness will never get us into a relationship with our God. It has to be entirely about faith and not... Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. I just want you to bookmark that verse as I've just said it. Not of works, lest any of us should, what was the word again? Boast. Just bookmark that thought. We'll come back to it in just a moment. How did the Jews get there in this place outside of God's plans and purposes? Zealous, but for the wrong things. Righteous, but by the wrong standard. And then third, this one, believing, but the wrong message. Look at verse 4. They believed, but they believed the wrong message. Verse 4, for Christ is the end. For Christ is the end. Do you have it underlined yet? I'll say it again. Underline it while I say it. Christ is the end. 
He's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the only way that we can get into a relationship with God. Any message from any faith group that does not completely and without reservation and without qualification affirm that sins are forgiven, eternal life obtained, and a relationship with God established through anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ is believing the wrong message. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter, he preached... And there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What's the name? Jesus Christ. Christ is the end. Not Islam, not Buddhism, not humanism, not environmentalism, not conservatism, not liberalism, not any other religious, philosophical, or political ism can get us into a relationship with God. There is no other name but the name Jesus Christ. And so we affirm that. Amen. So we must say this. Not only do the Jews stand outside of this message, but so do the Muslims. So does every Hindu who lives in our city and around the world. So do all the people who embrace New Age philosophies and religions. So do all those who are marginal and cultural Christians in name only. So are all the people who are the I believe in God crowd who you work and live with every day. There is no other name. The end is Christ. Every person drawing breath on this day on planet earth needs Jesus Christ. They must name him as Lord and Savior. Look what it says in verse 17 of chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Some would ask, well then, when Paul's going on with the argument, have they not heard, speaking of Israel, didn't they hear? Didn't they get this message? And Paul says, yeah, they got the message. Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The very things that the Jews recorded for us in what we call the Old Testament went out far and wide to spread this message, the news of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the world. It was all there and the Jews knew it. And somehow they missed it. They missed, they believed the wrong things. As a people they did. Of course, many individual Jews, and even to this day, there is a remnant from among the Jewish people who are believing in their Messiah, but the privilege of meeting some, and the joy that is in them for having met their Messiah is unbridled and enthusiastic and infectious. Paul lays it out for us. How do we get into this relationship? He takes time in chapter 10 to lay it out, and in verse 9 we see... It's so clear, it's so uncomplicated to get into a relationship with God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, believe that he's the one in charge of your life, not you. No more misplaced zeal. No more uh, righteousness of my own making. A God is, Jesus Christ is Lord in my life. He is to be my God. Believe, in your, believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe in the miracle of the resurrection. 
It is by the power of the resurrection that sin is defeated, that we have a relationship with him. Look what it says, and you'll be saved, for with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Have you done that? I mean, maybe there's people here, and it's all been all about, you're going to kind of through the list, and you're going, you know, I got a zeal, but it's wrong place, righteousness, I made it up myself, belief, the wrong thing. And maybe today's your day to just say, I need to believe the right things. I need to align the righteousness uh, that I've been making up. I need to align that with God's righteousness. I need to have a zeal for him. And today's the day where you need to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth, believe with your heart the things that Paul writes here. But it says in verse 13, I love it, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we might ask the question then, knowing now where they went wrong and where they ended up, what's God up to now? I mean, where's God in the midst of all of this? The people are off track, set outside of his plans and purposes. Where's God? What's he doing? Is he just going to leave them there? Is that the end of the story? Of course it isn't. Before we get to that, we really need to mind down on something and see something a little bit more about ourselves. Because there's really one root from which all of this misplaced zeal and wrong righteousness and wrong belief springs from. It's so important for us to understand this before we can understand what God is doing for us, where God is right now. We have to talk about pride. Remember, we put a bookmark in our minds in Ephesians 2.8. See, it's not of works, lest any of us should boast. You see, if it was of works, you know, it'd be easy to boast. I mean, if you could do certain things, you know. I prayed all the right prayers. I read the Bible straight through. I, I lifted my hands in worship. I gave the right amount of money. I, I, did, I did seven things that I was supposed to do. And, and, and then there's all these other things I'm not doing. And so because I've done all of that, I, I've got my ticket headed for heaven. Wow, could I ever boast in that if that were true, right? Look at me. Hey, got the ticket. You would all go, wow, good for you, man. I'm still working on it. I'm still on number four. I'm so proud of you that you made it. You see, not of works, lest any of us should boast. If we really could attain it by works, we really could brag about it. And pride stands in the way of any good thing that God really wants to do in our lives. Look at verse 19. This is exactly what happened to Israel. It all started with spiritual pride. The zeal and the righteousness and the belief stuff, that was really just fruit coming off of the, off the pride. But I asked, did Israel not understand, Paul writes? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. Who's he talking about there? Those who are not a nation? That's the Gentiles, right? They're not a nation. They're really a lot of nations. They're anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Really? What's that all about? Well, you see, the children of Israel thought they, they were the exclusive ones. We're the only ones. We got it. We got God. No one else has God, but we've got God. And they became so spiritually proud of the fact that they thought they had God. They couldn't possibly believe that uh, the Gentiles would ever get a piece of that action. 
Pride welled up inside of, uh, inside of them and it allowed other things to fester and grow so that when their Messiah came, they completely missed it. And God said to them, I'm going to take those very Gentiles that you thought were undeserving and I'm going to make them the ones that I'm working with. And while I'm working with them, you are going to be so jealous and so stirred up inside and so angry that it's them. Somehow the Jews had completely missed the point that God was always interested in the Gentiles. Always, always, always. When he asked them to build the temple, he said, build a court around it. That's the place where the Gentiles can come and worship. They're not going to be part of the inside part, but we still got to make it possible. The whole concept of Abraham being the one who received the covenant was that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the people of Israel. See, the only ones who didn't seem to know that was Israel. Their pride got the best of them. It was the Jewish nation's undoing, the sense of ethnic and religious superiority of being exclusively God's chosen to the exclusion of all other peoples. They acted as playground snobs and bullies. Nah, 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 nah. We got God and you don't. Only they didn't. They didn't have him, and they didn't know it. They grieved God's heart so deeply. The God who had poured out his grace on them had given them the covenants to redeem the world. I'm not being hard on Israel. I'm condemning myself when I say these things. I've been struck lately by what God really values in a follower of Christ. I've been struck hard by the things that really hinder us as a church and hinder me as a follower, hinder my family from being all that we can be for Christ. It's pride. It's spiritual arrogance. It's all, we're in a great place and look what God is doing. And so much of what God is doing is really just our own work and our own busyness. And we're so proud of it all. We're missing out on what God can really do. 80% of the people of Barrie are not in church this morning and didn't give it another thought when they woke up. 20% of us headed off to church some of us are actually excited about it. What kind of impact are we making on our city? I mean, really. The fact is, if it just continues as business as normal, then five years from now, it'll still be 20% and 80%. We'll grow along with the population of our city as it grows, and other churches will start and grow as well, and some will close down and the 80% will go along, not really feeling like the church of Jesus Christ really means anything to them. Oh, your neighbors will know that you're slightly more spiritual or religious than they are. They won't fully understand it, of course. It won't really impact their lives very much, and we'll just go merrily on, thinking that we're all doing okay. It's spiritual pride. And it was Israel's undoing. And I'm speaking to us. The beginning of all victorious, successful living 
Walking with Christ begins with humility. It's the elimination of pride. It's the embracing of a broken and humble life. Personally, I wish I'd understood this earlier in my own life. I've heard the words for years. I've been walking with Christ for almost 30 years. I've heard the words time and time again. I've read them. I've read books about humility and how much it is the critical hinge point upon God's blessing coming upon us. I'm not sure I've ever understood it. How tragic that it would take me this long to know the victory and the success that can come in this life if only I will turn myself over to Christ My pride has hindered my walk. It's hindered my ability to cast off sin in my own life. This has been known all through church history. One of the church fathers, Augustine, said, should you ask me what is the first thing in religion, I will reply, the first, second, and third thing therein is humility. Jonathan Edwards, a contemporary of George Whitfield, said, Pride is the worst viper that is in the heart and the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. John Stott, a great leader of the 20th century in the church, At every stage of our Christian development and every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. C.J. Mahaney, the president of Southern Seminary, the real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart, it's where pride exists and how pride is expressed in your life. humble person in the room still has enough pride in their life to derail everything that God wants to do. To put ourselves in a place, a tragic place outside of his plans and purposes. Israel stumbled over her pride. Jesus couldn't possibly be the one doesn't fit our life, doesn't fit our plan, doesn't fit our ideas. This can't possibly be the way. I think I know better than God. I think I know better how to plan my life, what my purpose for life is. It's pride. It has to go. So what's God doing It's the question that's in front of us. Where's God? What's he doing in the face of these pride-filled people? My favorite verse in the whole chapter is verse 21. Look what he says. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Where's God? He's standing in front of us. And his arms are reaching out to us. Was he there for a while and then just got tired of holding out his hands and saying, oh, you know what, they're never really going to turn. It's just like, oh, whatever, so full of pride and walking away with his arms folded. What was the first say? All day long, 
God never ceases to be there with his arms held wide open. Come to me, come to me, he says. Come for forgiveness. Come, I'm, I'm filled with mercy and compassion for you. Come and confess your sin and, and find the restoration that only I can offer. I am a loving God ready to restore you. One of my former teachers says that God in this text is the jilted lover. He's the one who had the covenant relationship with us. We, we are the adulterers. We've gone off and cheated on him. And the jilted lover stands there with his arms open saying to we, his bride, come back to me. I love you so much. I'm so committed to what we're doing here. I, I'm faithful. And we need that. We need a God who's going to take us in and gather us up into his arms. There are times when I sit in this place and I worship. There are times when I lift my hands to affirm something I'm hearing and sometimes just out of joy and excitement. But there are times when I'm reaching out in desperation. God, like I'm just in a bad place and what I really need right now is for you to take me up in your arms. God, would you receive me? Whitfield completely understood this. He wrote to John Wesley. At this point, Wesley still was not a believer. He understood the difference finally between religion and what God was offering him between works and faith. He wrote of grace, and he said this to Wesley, into his all-gracious arms I blindly throw myself. Into his all gracious arms, I blindly throw myself. God standing there, waiting for us to humble ourselves, to admit that we have no other recourse, to admit that our strength is not sufficient, to admit that our way is flawed, to say that we finally recognize that our decisions and the way that we've been living our life has resulted in failed relationships and anxiety and strife. It's resulted in anger and a lack of joy and nothing in this life that we pursue brings ultimate and final satisfaction or pleasure. And we're done with it. And we humble ourselves before our God who receives us to himself. 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourself and he will lift you up. Is this really about Israel alone? Remember, this is a, an inquiry, a judicial inquiry into our relationship with God. We already really know the answer. It's, it's not really about Israel alone. It's about us. It's not about them it's not about them versus us, them Israel, us the church. We have these visuals to kind of indicate what we're trying to understand about the people of God. We have the cross to represent the church, the follower of Christ. We have the star of David to represent the Jewish people. But let me suggest from the scriptures that it is one people of God, the star of David is our symbol too. 
Israel's story is our story. Israel's triumphs are our triumphs. Israel's tragedies are our tragedies. We are one people of God. First Corinthians 10 says that all of these things, all of the stories of the faithful patriarchs of Israel, the stories of Moses coming out to take the promised land. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that they're all there for our examples. These are our stories. They're a call to us to live as God would have us live. Romans 10, 12, it says, you know what? 10, 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. We are one people of God. We have to get past the, our own measure of zeal, righteousness, and belief, cast off our pride, and run into his arms, into his all-gracious arms. We must blindly throw ourselves on this day. I'm going to ask you to set aside your Bibles and your pens and notebooks. Just, just close it all up and set it aside. And I'm going to invite you to pray right now, just to pray silently and go before the Lord. There's a lot for us to think about here, a lot to meditate on. I think our souls have been laid bare before the Lord here in His Word. The Spirit wants to do a work in your life. So we're just going to have a moment here, just quiet, no music just for you to pray and consider these things before the Lord. I'm going to invite you to respond. You can respond just privately where you are. If you want to come up to the front and make an indication that God's doing a work in your life and respond more publicly, I'd invite you to do that as well. Whatever God would lead you to do in these moments, let's spend this time in quiet prayer.